Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. My guest today is Professor Lee Bygrove. He has a really interesting story about his name, which he's going to tell us in a minute. Uh, he's the director of the Norwegian uh, Research Centre for Computers and Law at the University of Oslo's Department of Private Law. He's also an affiliate at the University of Oxford's Centre for Health Law and Emerging Technologies. So, Lee, let's start with what you were just telling me about your name. How do we pronounce it in the Norwegian context? Well, the Norwegians would sometimes say bug which actually... Bygrava, I love Bygrava. it. It sounds so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually means a city grave or city diggings. So it's not a particularly uplifting <laughs> surname to have. But <laughs> I keep trying to insist uh, on the on the English pronunciation, which is bygrave. Bygrave. Yeah, yeah. There we As go. As in Max, but no S. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today on Tech Mirror. It's a real it's a pleasure. pleasure to have you here. You're here um, visiting at the ANU College of Law, and we wanted to take this opportunity because you've been doing some really fascinating work around the concepts of security by design and how we're starting to see this emergence of design language in legal and regulatory frameworks. We're going to dive into that in a minute. But before we do, we try and ease our podcast guests in with a question about your first interactions with computers or with technology and where your interest in, you know, how did you end up being someone who was focused on working on these types of issues? Well, we have to go back to the 1980s, uh, back in the day. And I remember the first computer that I had direct experience with. Yeah. And it was an Apple Macintosh. Yeah. Uh, I was a resident at Burton Garen Hall over here on the ANU campus. Oh, I didn't realize you were an alum. There you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. And uh, an American student had just come back from California with this Apple Macintosh in his luggage. Wow. And and we locals sort of gathered around this amazing machine and thought, wow, yeah, exactly, wow. And, uh, was it one of those sort of square ones or was it the colour one? No, it was the, the, the square one. Yeah. And or it, rectangular it, almost they yeah, were, weren't they? Yeah, it sort of yeah. earned the name Fat Mac. <laughs> and, and despite its, uh, its shape, it was decidedly very, very cool. So you have a legal background. Where did your interest take you in the direction of emerging technologies or, or law and technologies, computer and technologies? Well, again, I'd go back to the ANU mm. in my final year of studies, mm. uh, doing a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Laws degree. I was looking around for a topic for an honours thesis mm -hmm. in law. And Peter Bain, who was a professor at the law school at the time, said, oh, this is 1987, by the way. He said, oh, you know, we've got this fresh piece of legislation called the Privacy Act. Oh, uh, timely. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you want to write about that. Yeah. And I had absolutely no idea what the Privacy Act was about. But I started then delving into the literature, yeah. discovered there was a lot of literature, mainly philosophical, yeah. around privacy, the value of privacy, yeah. what threatens privacy. And uh, then wrote a, an honours thesis. And in doing the research for the honours thesis, I spent a lot of time at the National Library here in Canberra. And I came across a book called A Decade of Computers and Law. And this was an mm. anthology that basically celebrated the first 10 years of research done at the Norwegian Research Centre of Computers and Law oh, wow. in Oslo. Okay. So I knew about that centre. And when I read the book at the time, I thought, wow, this is really advanced, but really, really interesting. Little did I know that I'd end up at that centre and now 
directing the centre. Yeah. But uh, so I guess it was a mix of suggestion on the part of Peter Bain and serendipity on the part of that sort of book discovery at the National Library. That's even more interesting in the context of the direction that I'd like to take the discussion that we have today, looking at security by design, but also comparing it to some of the discussion and evolution of privacy by design. And of course, in Australia, in the context of the uh, the Optus, Medibank hacks um, that are going on, lots of discussion going on about reform of the Privacy Act, which um, has had a few amendments since you were studying it in 1987, but not a lot um, since then. So we'll we'll touch on all of those things, but I think as a as a starting point, let's define what we mean when we're talking about security by design, and then we'll we'll have a conversation about how the evolution of that term has come out because it's something we hear all the time uh, in conversations at the moment. Sure. Well, you know, security by design is just one of many by design mantras that are becoming very popular. Uh, you see them increasingly flagged in legislation. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this is happening in Europe with uh, EU legislative acts. And I guess the by design mantra in itself, it's sort of signaling that we need to take the values or interests or the, the referent object, as it were, that's linked to that particular mantra. We need to take that seriously. Mm. And that means that we need to be sort of on the front foot. We need to be planning uh, designing to ensure that that value or interest is catered for adequately in the in the environment in which it's mm. supposed to uh, flourish. Uh, so it's, um, I guess, I see it as um, signalling a need to to think ahead and to uh, hardwire, as it were, that particular value or interest into into the environment. Mm. As for security by design. Um, that's originally a, um, a software engineering principle that exhorts software engineers to, again, think about security mm. uh, on the front foot, mm. not, not think of security as an afterthought, yeah. as an add-on. You, you think about it right at the very start of information systems development. You embed it throughout the life cycle of the information systems development process, and you also continually revisit it yeah. uh, in light of changing security threats, for mm. example. Mm. And and so you're talking about there being popular mantras, and I think you know some of the ones that I'm sure our listeners will have heard of as things like data protection by design, privacy by design, uh, security by design, safety by design, which is something that um, our eSafety Commissioner in Australia talks about a lot. And one of the things that I was interested in looking at some of your writing was that you um, have observed that security by design hasn't received as much attention from a legal legal scholarship perspective as perhaps privacy by design or other terms. So I was a little surprised when I read that because for me, security by design is something that has been part of the lexicon for so long. But I, I understand what you're saying is that it, it's morphed from being an engineering concept into more of a legal and a regulatory concept. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I was also surprised when I started doing research yeah. on security by design specifically. And, yeah. I, and I cast around and I found very, very little, particularly from legal scholars, yeah. uh, but also even you know scholars looking at regulatory regimes more generally. 
there was very, very little. Mm. And uh, I think it might reflect a uh, perception that security as such is rather mundane, not particularly sexy. Mm. Uh, also, even if you look at, say, the security or the, let's say, the engineering community and, and what it has produced of literature, mm. there are some really substantial texts on security engineering, but there are sur- surveys suggesting that a lot of computer scientists don't find security uh, very pleasurable. Yeah, uh, it's something they sort of have to do, but it's not something they would, you know, desire to do. Mm. And uh, which I also found surprising. And I guess that might also have to do with the fact that it's not until recently that security was a staple part of a basic computer science degree. Mm. So you've got a whole generation of security engineer, oh, software engineers out there for whom security is still a rather um, alien uh, and, and somewhat marginal interest. Mm. Uh, and and so the focus had been on, you know, designing a product that was innovative or new or breaking new ground rather than on focusing on uh, what the security implications may be um, because, of course, yeah. that adds an immense layer of complication to the challenge of designing yeah. uh, a new product. That, 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 that's right. And I'll return to that uh, shortly, but I think another cause for the lack of focus on security by design has to do with uh, the lack of a, um, a high-profile, bespoke legislative provision mm. that's saying, you know, you must adhere to security by design. Mm. Now, data protection by design and to some extent privacy by design, they have that provision now mm. in Article 25 of the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, the yeah. GDPR. But uh, And I would say that security is implicit in Article 25 but it's not flagged as, you know, it's not flagged explicitly in that provision. Mm. So, and then on top of that, you don't have very many high profile court cases where the judges have wielded the big stick, come down really hard on an organization for poor security. Mm. There, there are some, some incidents, but even, you know, major scandals like the Equifax hack from 2017, the litigation in the wake of that scandal basically sort of fizzled out and it's largely forgotten about. Mm. And Equifax shares are back at, uh, you know, they're back at their, what they were prior to that scandal. Yeah, yeah. Which is, and particularly given the litigious nature of the US where the Equifax uh, scandal happened, it, it it is extraordinary that there hasn't been more action in that space. And that's obviously something I think that the new legislation in Australia, um, we currently have a bill before our parliament that is looking to increase the penalties for breaches. And it's actually an amendment to the Privacy Act, which is mm-hmm. um, being put forward. And it, it is interesting there, the link between um, making amendments to the Privacy Act to imp- effectively impose the penalties for poor cybersecurity. Um, and I think that's a really, when you speak to, when I speak to European actors in this space, the link between data protection and cybersecurity is one that is taken as a given. Mm-hmm. In Australia, we still often speak about them like they're two separate things, which obviously they're two sides of the same coin, but we talk about cybersecurity or security by design, and then we talk about privacy that sits over here. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much that comes together after, you know, in the wake of uh, Optus and, and Medibank, for example. Mm. But uh, I mean, in terms of Europe, 
while there is uh, a, a widely acknowledged link between data protection and privacy protection on the mm. one side and security mm. on the other, nonetheless, the if you look at the EU legislative framework, there is an immense amount of legislation in addition to the GDPR that has security as its primary yeah. remit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have a recent proposal around um, sort of resilience of connected devices and that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, but that, that comes on top of at least three or four other pieces of legislation dealing with security in various contexts. So, yeah. so there is a, a huge legislative framework that exists in addition to the GDPR. Yeah. And I would, it, it, it's somewhat surprising if, if all of the cybersecurity provisions for Australia are going to be put under the um, under the the framework of the Privacy Act. Well, I don't think I don't think there's any suggestion that they will. Um, uh, actually, the majority of Australia's cybersecurity obligations um, sit under critical infrastructure legislation, and we've had two major pieces of legislation that passed at the end of last year or mid last year, and then the end of last year that have come into play. But they're setting cybersecurity obligations for critical infrastructure. And we don't have, for example, a Cybersecurity Act. And I think the example you're referring to about the uh, the EU's proposed Cyber Resilience Act, is that correct? Yep, the correct yep. title? I, I think there'll be a lot of interest in Australia about that, watching how that progresses through the EU parliament. Can you perhaps just give us a high level overview in terms of what that act is proposing to do? Okay, so the the origins of the Act um, formally are ascribed to Ursula von der Leyen's uh, keynote or State of the Union speech uh, last European autumn, yeah. where and she it, said it, we are going to introduce uh, legislation on you know connected devices, yeah. in effect, sort of Internet of Things. Yeah, and uh, now we have a proposal that was public made public just just a yeah. In September, I think. It's yes, quite new. A couple of months yeah, ago. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I must admit I haven't really got gotten into into the, the depths of the proposal. Yeah. But I I see it as an attempt to introduce sort of consistent uh cybersecurity standards mm. and cyber resilience standards mm. to apply to a whole range of devices mm. uh without linking up to notions of critical infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, so it's operating somewhat independently of the Network and Information Security Directive that we now have in place already from 2016 and which is soon to be replaced by a, a second, like the NIS2 Directive, as it's called. Yeah. Uh, and both of those Network and Information Security initiatives have had some problems because they have been linked up to particular sectors mm, uh, mm. which are sort of defined rather loosely mm. uh, and where member states have adopted somewhat inconsistent views as to what deserves protection mm. uh, under those regimes. But the Connected Devices or Cyber Resilience Act will be more sort of horizontal in scope and, and applying to products that are put on the, the market. Mm. And we're talking about a large market when it comes to the EU. Yeah. So it's probably going to have a global significance as well. You know, and then, then we can talk about the, the another example of the Brussels effect. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think what what's interesting to me about the Cyber Resilience Act is that it's really, it does seem to be focusing on the consumer protection elements of good cybersecurity, which is missing in a lot of the debate because when we're talking about cybersecurity, and it's partly because of the challenge, you know, you've got to focus, getting cybersecurity right. It's easy to talk about it, hard to implement. How do we actually move to a, a stage where we, rather than just having you know high level statements about it how do we actually implement um, security by design it's always surprised me for example that we haven't had more uh, law and potentially legal actions around things like fitness for purpose um, if we have products that don't meet cybersecurity standards but they're advertised in in a way that would indicate that they are cyber secure and what I think the cyber resilience act is saying is well we're actually essentially legislating for fitness for for purpose, which is a really uh, fascinating progression as we look at look at uh, the evolution of the standards. All of this leads back to, and part of the reason why I think we have focused so much on critical infrastructure in this space is, how do you actually define meaningfully a standard of cybersecurity by design in a way that um, doesn't become redundant by the time you've written the legislation? Um, so it really goes to the, you know, if we're talking about implementing cybersecurity by design, how do we actually do that? Uh, from a legal perspective rather than from an engineering perspective. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and I guess EU legislation tries to introduce some flexibility uh, in the legislative standards by referring to, for example, uh, what is the state of the art. Yeah. And I find the references to the state of the art really fascinating, also from a purely legal perspective, because mm -hmm. those references are, in the first place, bringing in sort of soft law conceptions as to what ought to be in place yep. in a hard law framework. Yeah. And it's also, in a sense, um, collapsing the distinction we often make in law between, you know, law as it is and law as it ought to be. Yeah. Because when you reference the state of the art, you're referencing something that is inherently dynamic because the state of the art will change with business, industry, engineering conceptions as to what is sort of best practice. Mm. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's really, really mm. fascinating. And mm. I think it's probably, uh, you know, a good way to go. I can't see of any other formulations that are going to retain the, the flexibility needed mm. and yet at the same time signal that we need to be looking outside that legislative framework for the appropriate uh, real world standards, as it were. Mm. So we've got to be looking at the work done by the ISO, by uh, those sorts of organisations, by industry bodies, mm. as mm. to what they see is is you know good, reasonable steps to secure mm. infrastructure. And it's fascinating because in the context of the the penalty bill that is currently before the Australian Parliament, one of the most controversial elements of that is looking at there's a provision that's saying that you need to have taken reasonable steps to protect the information. And so in this field, what are reasonable steps um, becomes, you know, when, you, when you're talking about other areas of established law, what is reasonable, you know, you can go to case precedent and, you know, you, you get a very clear idea of, or certainty actually, because that's what businesses are looking for is business certainty of the standards that they're looking to be held to. 
and we don't have that uh, in this concept. And um, certainly looking at some of the submissions that have been made in response to that penalties provisions, um, there, there are calls for, you know, if we, if we are going to go down this route, we need to have very clear guidance on what would be reasonable and also the concept of, of safe harbours so th- that you're not having penalties for companies that are that may have a breach when they have taken those reasonable steps. So very much, a whilst also a theoretical discussion, very much a live discussion that's playing out here uh, in Australia as well. Sure. And, and even, in, even in Europe, you don't have very much judicial case law that, mm. that sets out what is reasonable mm. uh, from a court's perspective. And we, we have a case pending before the Court of Justice of the European Union now, mm-hmm. which will hopefully shed light on those sort of reasonable security steps standards. Mm-hmm. But that's, as I said, pending. Uh, so we're, we're waiting with... Uh, with uh, yeah, bated breath. Yes, you see yes. what comes out. Yes. Yeah, and it's we. So we recently had a case in Australia that uh, went uh, through the courts as well. That that said, it w- there was an obligation on directors to have good cybersecurity practices. So that's probably one uh, example of case law in Australia. Um, I forget the name of the case. We'll put the link up. It was, up a, it in was the... a federal court decision by a, by a single judge. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. But, but it didn't. Again, it didn't really. Uh, enlighten us a great deal. Not on, on the not on the terms of what would be reasonable, but it, mm. but I think it's it was the first example um, of a case in Australia that that said um, directors' duties uh, directors have a duty to mm. be taking into consideration cybersecurity, which you know you would hope all directors understand that they have that duty. But it, it's interesting to see it actually spelled out uh, in the case law. So, but as you say, um, not in a lot of depth. Yeah, no, hope, hope. Uh, I mean, I think all of these security scandals, or many of them at least, signal mm. that uh, CEOs, um, even, uh, you know, maybe CSOs, uh, mm. their security hasn't been sufficiently in their in their field of focus. Mm. Uh, and, and these scandals often evidence incredibly lax uh, approaches to security. Mm. Uh, so it's often a case of not security by design, but security by disaster, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> I like it. Mm. <laughs> and I was uh, fascinated um, looking at some research out of ANU's Centre for Social Research um, that was published yesterday that that had some really interesting findings, but the one that most jumped out to me was that 92.8% of all Australian adults um, believe that the government needs to step in to regulate new technologies um, to protect consumers. And, you know, I think um, it's that's obviously being conducted in the aftermath of of Optus, Medibank and a bunch of other things that are happening here. But 92.8% of Australians, that's a pretty stark call for action. And then that that for me is how do we do that effectively? We can't just keep um, you know pushing legislation and regulations through for the sake of you know having good sound bites and being seen to respond. It's actually how do we craft this to to achieve that regulatory outcome? Do you think there are lessons that we can learn from the GDPR example where we've crafted privacy by design? You talked about the Brussels effect. I think. You know, the, the uh, EU's privacy regulations, GDPR, really did, has set uh, a global standards. Is there lessons that we can take from, from that experience? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, and I think if you're looking at, say, Article 25 of the GDPR, which yep. is 
about data protection by design and by default. Yeah. And also by implication, security by design and by default. Yeah. Although there is a, another provision, Article 32, that deals more fairly and squarely with security. Yeah. We can we can look at that provision, uh, particularly Article 25, and see it as being unfortunately too convoluted. Yeah, I, uh, I looked it up last night and I was like, I can't even... Like reading the text of the paragraph, it's it's incomprehensible, and English is my first language. It yes, was, well, it's really difficult. Yeah. Yes, well, you're 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 not alone, and there have been, uh, you know, very, uh, yeah, highly skilled legal scholars with expertise in this field who have also end up scratching their heads. Yeah. Uh, and let criticizing, alone the engineers who have. Let to, alone yeah. the engineers. Yeah. So so it's pitched in a way that is unnecessarily complex. And thus it falls short of communicating clearly and directly with, mm. amongst others, the engineering community yeah. who are going to try to make sense of it. Mm. And that means somewhat paradoxically that the complexity of the phrasing of Article 25 ends up creating a type of black box that the engineering community is often accused themselves of creating mm. with you know, AI-enhanced uh, decision-making processes. Yeah. So... Uh, this this sort of black box um, effect of Article 25 then has sort of stunted, diminished the the conversation we have to have between regulators and regulatees. Mm. So that's that's an important lesson to learn. That is, if you're going to have a by design mandate, make sure you formulate it simply and and clearly, and not using the sort of contorted syntax that Article 25 is currently formulated in. Mm, mm. Uh, I think another um, lesson is that we need to have uh, understandable methodologies. Mm. And while in Europe, the European Data Protection Board, which is the collection of representatives of the data protection authorities, the equivalents yep. of the Office of Information Commissioner here, mm. while they've issued guidelines on how to sort of, you know, in a sense, rules of the road for, for Article 25 operationalization, even those guidelines are still pitched at a too abstract a level. Mm. They're not really very practical, uh, concrete rules of the road. And mm -hmm. I've spoken to many software engineers who are still scratching their heads. So we need this. I think the second lesson is, you know, okay, you've, you've got the formulation of the legislative provision done clearly, but you also need to have some established agreed methodologies mm. for how to implement those uh, mandates. Mm. And th 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 these will come, these will come, but the process is slow and it needs to be, uh, and, 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 and it's going to be hard work. Yeah. Uh, and the point is, you know, if you're going to knock on the door of the, the technology community, you've got to knock on it quite hard. Uh, and consistently, purposefully, <laughs> yes, by design in yes, a sense, yeah. uh, so that they do take take note. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think one of the uh, sorry to keep going back to the the penalties provisions, but it's something that I'm I'm focused on a little bit at the moment in in other areas. But looking at many of the submissions that that the tech industry is making to that legislation, what what another thing that stood out to me is. All of them start by saying we actually don't object to stronger penalties, and so you know I, I think the the knocking on the door there are people opening the door cautiously, and it's about that effectiveness and and delivering the certainty that is required to then deliver the outcome that we're looking for, which is 
better cybersecurity or security by design to deliver an outcome for people, which is often lost in the conversation as well, like for consumers or for individuals. So if we do get cybersecurity by design or security by design, drop the cyber, security by design right, what does what does that actually look like? What does the world look like in that sense? That's a good question. Uh, I, I think that um, what you'd get would be, well, A, you're not going to get 100% security. Yeah, that, never. That, that you'll, yeah. you'll never get that. Mm. Everyone agrees. Mm. Uh, but what you will get is a, a world without um, toys like my friend Kayla. Uh, which was a toy <laughs> produced by Genesis Toys, an American manufacturer, yeah. and, and marketed a few years ago. Yeah. And this was a, a toy for children with a unsecured Bluetooth connection, which enabled then outsiders to eavesdrop on conversations, yeah. other activity in children's bedrooms, and possibly even to communicate with the children. Mm. So this was a you know a toy that looked really really fancy and was sort of Bluetooth connectivity enhanced, mm. but where the basic security settings were simply not there. Yeah. And indeed in Germany, that toy ended up being taken off the market because it was seen as an espionage device under German computer crime legislation. Mm. But, uh, you know, that is exemplary of a whole range of products that are now being rolled out to make us all more connected and to increase our convenience, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But getting the security settings of those devices initially configured so that you do have reasonable settings for security in the first place, that will hopefully be something that, that happens mm. if the security by design mm. vision is properly mm. realized. Mm. And that in turn will create hopefully a more consistent and reliable, robust information ecosystem mm that then feeds into and off critical infrastructures. Mm, mm. Um, but as I said, we'll never get perfect security yeah. and possibly we don't want uh, perfect security. Mm. And it, this all goes back to, so So in the original tagline of this podcast was, how do we ensure that technology is making our lives better, not just easier? And I think that the concept of security by design and security by default, can you just, exp um, for the listeners, explain what the difference between security by design and security by default is? Because in the example you're just giving there of the the child's toy, actually it's, it's important also for it to be by default as well. So can you just expand? Yeah, on that? so so I I see by default as sort of the the, the little brother or the little sister of yeah. the by by design mandate. Yeah. So it's basically saying you need to have a product with configurations that optimize the um, the, the the particular value or like in this case security. Yeah. Um, so that you as a user of the product, a consumer, you're not the one that has to make the product more secure. Yeah. It is, you don't have it to turn secure. it on. Yeah. Exactly. It is yeah. secure from the from the start. Yeah. 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 It's shipped to you in a secure way rather than you having to delve through all of the settings, assuming that the settings exist to find the thing that you need to turn on to make it secure. Yeah. 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 And, or, and where often consumers either they don't, they don't know or they're not particularly interested mm. in doing anything about the security settings. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So we're talking here about, uh, we've focused a lot of our discussion on security by design. We, uh, the most common three legs of the stool, if you like, in, in Australia that we hear is privacy by design, security by design, and safety by design. We referred to some of the other by design mantras earlier. Do you think it's possible to talk about security by design in isolation? And is it still useful for us to talk about the individual mantras by design, or should we actually just be talking about more broadly responsible tech and designing technology that is responsible with responsible encompassing all of these um, subsets? Yeah, I think it is possible mm. to see all of these individual by design mantras as part and parcel of a, of a broader uh, endeavour. Mm. And you, you're flagging sort of responsible um design, I guess, mm. as one possible term for that broader endeavor. There have been a number of other terms used up through the years, value-sensitive design. Yeah. That's, you know, particular, uh, particularly um, Butcher Friedman's work. Uh, values in design with Helen Nissenbaum's work. Mm -hmm. uh, you've also got the notion of values for design. You've got uh, legal design. Uh, so, so there are lots of design mantras that flag the need to embed human values mm. in technology development. Mm. And then we've also got this notion of responsible innovation or responsible research and innovation, mm. uh, which is particularly strong in, in Europe. And they are all, I guess you can all see them as reflecting what you would maybe call responsible design or, mm. um, yeah, and uh, they need to be um, sort of linked up, the, the commonalities acknowledged. The problem with a, a term like responsible design is that it is very broad. Yeah, and, are we and diluting it? Yeah. So yep. to operationalize it, you are probably going to have to go back to <laughs> these various components yes. like security, data protection, yep. um, safety, openness, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, mm. Um, there's also a lot of focus on so-called ethics by design as well uh, yeah. in Europe, particularly yeah. in relation to smart robotics and other sort of AI applications. Mm. Again, I find ethics by design a bit too fluffy uh, on its own to to communicate clearly mm. what what is what is really at stake. Yes, exactly. And I think the oper operationalization, gosh, that's a terrible word, of ethics by design or any of these things, like actually getting to a point where you can articulate within a legal framework an obligation for the people who are designing the technology, but also then for the regulators to be able to enforce it, to oversee it, and for consumers and, and the general public to be able to understand what those obligations are as well. Um, it, is, it is hard. And I think the concept of responsible technology, at least in Australia, is is gaining increasing momentum. But I do agree with you in terms of you, you don't want to water down these concepts, which in and of themselves are actually very immature as well. So we, we need to be bringing that depth to the, the work. I, th I think the notion of responsibility is, is, is good and it links yeah. up with corporate social responsibility, mm. for example. So there's a lot of responsibility discourse that has, you know, some established methodologies and, and parameters mm. uh, for its terrible word operationalization <laughs> but um, but but you uh, you you were talking about sanctions before and and one of the challenges with 
sanctions for breach of very vaguely worded legislative provisions mm. is that uh, courts or other regulators will f- may maybe be reluctant to wield a big stick if the norm they are trying to enforce is seen as a bit too fluffy, that it doesn't meet your standard rule of law ideals of consistency, certainty, foreseeability. Mm. And I certainly had that concern with Article 25 of the GDPR. When I was first looking at it, I was thinking, A, this is so what hard to mean? understand. <laughs> yeah. uh, does it actually make sense? Mm. And and B, I, th- I thought this is way too diffuse to mm. ever attract the large fines that you can you can be whacked with mm. under the GDPR. But surprise, surprise, if you look at some of the recent decisions coming from EU regulators, mm. uh, Article 25 is being um, enforced. Uh, and the latest example is from the Irish Data Protection Commissioner in a case involving Meta, mm-hmm. where the Meta has been whacked with 405 million euros in fines. Now, you could say this is still pocket money for Meta, but nonetheless, it's a huge amount of Mm, money. It's a big amount, yep. And Article 25.1 on data protection by design and Article 25.2 on data protection by default, they are both part of the the mix here. Mm. And uh, so that's signaling to sceptics like myself that no, no, even though these provisions are quite vague... They nonetheless can be enforced mm. through through a fines regime. Mm. And I think um, just a call out here to a piece that uh, one of my colleagues at the Tech Policy Design Centre published uh, in Innovation Oz earlier this week or the week before. Um, I've been on leave, so I can't quite remember exactly when, but um, uh, it was uh, looking at some of the uh, increased provisions and increased expectations of the Australian Privacy Commissioner, um, who is one of Australia's least resourced regulators. So I mm. think there it really is the importance. Uh, it is important that as we are creating these enforcement regimes, that we're also resourcing the regulators to be able to enforce them. Um, rather than it's no, it's wonderful to have a law on paper, but unless we've got regulators who have the capacity to actually go out and, and monitor and enforce, they're not actually going to have that regulatory impact, which then goes back to the effectiveness argument. So we'll indeed, put a link to indeed, that. Yeah. We'll put a link to that article um, up. Good. So one last question and then one fluffy question, to use your terminology. I, I've seen in some of your writing that you, you warn that the legitimacy of security by design as a regulatory principle could be weakened if it's used to further authoritarian or corporate interests at the expense of civil liberties. Can you explain what your concerns around that are? I, I think I understand what they are, but it's um, it's always useful to hear it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> okay. So security by design is tied to the concept of security. Mm. And security is one of those terms that has a large range of what we call referent objects. Mm -hmm. And those referent objects may often be politically or economically charged. Think about national security, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, uh, national security, national sovereignty, those are values that could get uh, incorporated in a security by design uh, regime and where you invoke them to exercise, you know, extraordinary exercise of power. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that may be at the expense of civil liberties. Yeah, and you can see the way in which security, cybersecurity, and security by design is getting tied up with those sort of national security discussions. National interest, around, public interest. Yeah. yeah, but also you know think about all the kerfuffle around who's going to be involved in rollout of five G yeah. infrastructure, right? Yeah. So if security by design mandates start getting caught up in those sorts of discussions where national security is in the sort of front seat, yeah. it can end up being used in a way of uh, to, to, to strengthen state interests, mm. possibly at the, at the expense of, um, of civil liberties and, and possibly in a way that then pushes an, uh, state interests in, in an authoritarian or semi-authoritarian way and that would then create a sort of crisis of legitimacy for security by design. Mm. And actually undermine, undermine the intent of cybersecurity by design, actually. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, well, to some extent. Mm. And then in the terms of the private sector, we have examples where companies have used security as an excuse to do things that are really motivated by the desire to keep a particular market for themselves. Mm -hmm. So think of the examples to do with uh, use of printer cartridges, for example, where um, uh, you have printer manufacturers citing security fears as a reason for installing smart chips in their ink cartridges in order to ensure that only those cartridges uh, can be accepted by their printers. Huh. Uh, I hadn't heard of that. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, and then Sony, about ten years ago or so, with its um, PlayStation Three consoles, took away a particular f feature of those consoles in order to stop users of the console consoles uh, incorporating Linux as an operating system <laughs> for the consoles. And Sony did so using. Uh, security or cybersecurity as the pretext, but really, as a, a cynic would say, no, Sony was simply acting to maintain uh, a particular market dominance mm. here mm. at the expense of of, 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 of Linux. Um, so again, the you could you, you these are examples where commercially grounded proprietary concerns are really at play, not security concerns, mm. and where security is simply being used to, in effect, whitewash um, those concerns. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean, I, I think this is a really important part of the conversation. It just demonstrates the complexity of something. When you hear the term security by design, you're like, yes, that's a good thing. Let's have lots of that. But it's also important to make sure that, you know, we get the wording right, the clarity, the frameworks that we're thinking about the way that things can be misused. And mm. um, one of our previous guests on the pod, uh, Justin Warren, who's the head of uh, Electronic Frontiers Australia, has uh, one of the things that he said, which, which comes back to me often is, you know, when we're crafting new legislative proposals, we do need to think about how will this be misused? How can this be misused? And have that uh, front of mind. Um, hopefully I'm not misputting words in, uh, in Justin's mouth there. But I, but I think that also helps to demonstrate why we need more people engaged in these issues, um, focused and, and 
you know, providing this type of commentary and debate, which leads into the um, one of our last questions, which is what words of advice or encouragement would you have for people who are perhaps considering entering into a career in tech policy, law and tech, um, this type of field? What advice would you um, give to them or what advice would do you wish you had received when you were starting up? Well, I think I think in, you know engage with design discourse. It's mm. definitely part of the equation, mm. and I, I do see it as increasingly being on the radar screen. Mm. Uh, regardless, uh, it certainly wasn't on the radar screen when I entered into this area over thirty years ago. Yeah, um, but it's part and parcel of a of a I, I think a general societal trend uh, that. For example, Bruno Latour talked about when in in his work, you know, design is becoming increasingly something that people are aware of, thinking about, and and trying to sort of use in ways that will ultimately benefit society, mm. and also thinking through the implications of bad design. But that said, I think we've also always got to remember that good design is really hard yeah. to get right. Yeah. And there is perhaps an underappreciation by legislators and other regulators that simply having a by design mandate in legislation or in in policy documents, that's not a silver bullet. Mm. Um, it, it is it is necessary, but there's a lot of hard work to be done afterwards. And there are lots and lots of things that can go wrong because information systems rarely develop in the way their designers envisaged. And there's often a gap between what the designers think their system is doing and what the users ultimately think the system is doing and, 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 and how they, how use, they it. Yeah. use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you've given us lots of great recommendations uh, and and names and authors through uh, the conversation. The last question we always ask everyone is, are there any particular books or resources that, that you've found particularly helpful or that you would recommend? Have you got any nuggets of gold for us? Well, uh, there is... A, a good book by a Dutch guy called uh, Jaap Henk Hurtman. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his <laughs> his name correctly. It sounded like you were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he wrote a book published last year by MIT Press mm-hmm. called Privacy is Hard and Seven Other Myths, Achieving Privacy Through Careful Design. Oh, I like it. Yeah. And I've, I, I've, he's always very, very pragmatic uh, in a sense, very Dutch, <laughs> and he's just trying to dumb down, but in a good way, uh, privacy by design and data protection by design and also security by design and show that we can take through fairly simple, straightforward, commonsensical measures mm. a lot of steps that will that will make a difference. Mm. Uh, another uh, innovative a piece of work, but it's it's a little bit older now, is by Sarah Spiekerman, who's uh, Austrian and mm-hmm. working from Vienna. And she wrote a book back in, or published back in 2016 by Taylor and Francis called Ethical IT Innovation, a Value-Based System Design Approach, which is sort of, you know, going more in the direction that I think you were flagging around sort of responsible design. Mm. And she's also leveraging off the, the work of Butcher Friedman and, and Helen Nissenbaum. Mm. Mm. And I, I find Sarah's 
research more generally fascinating. So she she's the one who carried out a survey of computer computer scientists, uh, in which it was revealed that many of them didn't find security particularly yeah, interesting yeah. or pleasurable. Yeah. Uh, and and then I guess I can always flag my my own articles, but they are fairly um, you know legally focused. Well, we'll put um, we'll put the two that refer to these particular topics that you've been uh, we've been discussing. We'll put links to those um, up on in the pod notes as well. Good, yeah, good, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation, um, and looking forward to lunch with you later in the week. So sorry, listeners, you don't get to hear that conversation. But thank you so much for making the time, and we'll talk to you soon. Great, it was a pleasure, Johanna. Thank you. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.